If there's one kind of story that I'm always down for, it is a heist story. Whether it's a heist movie or a heist book or just reading news articles about some kind of real heist that went on, I am always excited. Uh, and one of my favorite things I love about this is how you just get all these different groups of people, sorry, people who have all these kind of different skills who they need at different points. You know, you need somebody who can crack the safe and somebody that can keep everybody from calling the cops and somebody to, you know, just to do these different things. So I love seeing how those all kind of come together. One of my favorite examples of this in media is um, at the very beginning of The Dark Knight, the second of Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. In the beginning, you know, they have all these guys in clown masks coming on to pull off a heist on a mob bank. And but my favorite part about this is they do this, you know, everybody's kind of doing their job. One guy cuts the phone line so they can't call 911, and then the guy behind him kills him, you know, so he can have more money. And then he goes and he does his job and, you know, cracks open the safe, and then the guy behind him kills him. And it just kind of keeps going on and on until there's only really one of them left. But what I love about it is at every single point, the people are always surprised, right? So, I mean, they just killed the guy behind them, so they get more money, but then when the guy in front of them kills them, they're shocked. This is one of my favorite tropes of everything, that bad guys are always seem to be surprised in movies when other bad guys act like bad guys and do bad guy things, right? And so they're just not loyal to them. And it always kind of surprises me, or it always surprises them, but it always makes me chuckle. But what we're going to see in the book of Ruth today is that this book is actually an extreme example of what true loyalty looks like, and what true loyalty looks like. And we're going to see that, you know, that the book of Ruth, it's, it's not just a love story, although that's there, and I'm sure there's plenty of Christian movies and things and stories and written about that. Um, and that's part of it, but I don't think this is just given here for us to see a, a lovely marriage and love story, but it's actually to give us, I think, an example of what true loyalty looks like. Now, not loyalty to our fellow bank robbers or to fellow people, but actually, at the end of it, loyalty to God. And really, there's a Hebrew word that we're going to see multiple times here, but it comes all throughout the Old Testament repeatedly, and it's called, it's, or its name is Hesed. And you're often going to see it translated a number of different ways. It's translated as steadfast. It's translated as kindness. It's God's faithfulness. It's His love. And it's hard to translate because there is so much that is wrapped up in this word. And what we're going to see is really it's ultimately this idea of God's loyalty and how He is loyal and faithful and kind to a people who do not deserve it. But so as we look at the book of Ruth, I'm going to point out a couple of times that this um, this word comes up, and I just want us to see, we're going to look at three different people. First, we're going to see Naomi's family and see what they teach us about loyalty. Second, we'll look at Ruth. And then finally, we're going to look at Boaz. Um, so it, you feel free to stay seated, um, but we're going to go ahead and we're just going to, I'm going to read through the entire book of Ruth. Um, so if nothing else, you can end today and say, hey, I read a whole book of the Bible today. And it's only four chapters, so it's not going to take us too long. Um, but if you go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, it's right after the book of Judges, um, and read with me. And it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Imelech, and his, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Imelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malin and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly, that's the word, has said, with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that each of you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may turn back and become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, and even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has turned back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where'er you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them came on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they went to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, her, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out, and she went and gleaned in the field after reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was a part of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came to Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the sheaves. After the reapers, and she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go with your vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her and said, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, about how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That phrase is going to come up again. Then she said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, that you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her the roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. And when she arose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. 
and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about any path of barley. And she took it up and went to the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she, she also brought out and gave her the food that she had left over from being satisfied. Then her mother-in-law said to her, Why did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, who's said, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside him, he said, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and that she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whom his young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man till he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came slowly and uncovered, or softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness, this last said, greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, and all that my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize one another. And, she said, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment which you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. No, Boaz had gone up from the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders to the city and said, sit down here, and they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Emelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it now in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. For if you would redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I will come after. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, so I cannot redeem it. And this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction that one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. 
So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all of the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Amalek and all that belonged to Chilean and to Malin. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead might not be cut off from among his brothers from the gate of this place. You are witnesses this day. Then all of the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who built up together the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathoth and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore him a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. When Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Amminadad, and Amminadad fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have included the story of this Moabite woman, Ruth, in our Bible. Help us to, to open our eyes this morning, open our hearts. Let us to see why she is included in the line of Jesus. And help us to see what you would have to show us today about loyalty to you and about who you are. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so first we're going to take a look at Naomi's family. And what we see with Naomi's family is that Naomi's family actually embodies disloyalty to God's covenant. So Naomi's family really embodies this disloyalty. They reveal what disloyalty or non-loyalty looks like. And so the first thing we should do is figure out, okay, well, when is this taking place? Well, it's always nice when the author lets us know. Sometimes you have to go and check other places or put these pieces together for us. But right away in verse 1, it says, well, this is in the days when the judges ruled. Okay, so this is after Joshua. We just took our time going through the book of Joshua. Right after that is the judges. Okay, and that's a time of a lot of wickedness, right? And he keeps raising up rulers because they're conquered, and then they're all good, and then they sin again, and he raises up another ruler, and it's just these cycles over and over. This is the time when Ruth comes. We don't know which judge, we don't know exactly where, but it's during that time period. And we also know, we see right away, that this is a time of evil, right? Because if you just look the verse right before verse 1, at the last verse in the book of Judges, it says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which is a hint that is not a good thing. Everyone's doing whatever they think is right, which is a lot of evil, a lot of sinfulness. And we see this right away because it's saying there is a famine in the land. Okay, what we know from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 is that a famine only comes into the land because of sin. Famine for Israel is not a natural phenomenon. A famine is always a sign of the curse. It is always a sign that there is disobedience and there is sin and there is a need for people to repent. So the way people should respond when the crops don't come in, when it's less than they expect, when the rain isn't coming, when there's a famine, is to go, you know what, there must be a lot of sin, time for us to repent so we can get on the right side of God. Well, that's not at all what Naomi's family does. What do they do? They've said, you know what, let's, uh, let's peace out of here. 
Let's go somewhere else. They actually abandon God. They show even more of their disloyalty in that they're like, you know what, we'll wait this out. We'll wait for maybe some other people to repent, maybe some other people to get back on God's good side, and when He comes back, then we'll come back. And this is really sinful, okay? There are lots of prophets. Jeremiah especially warns people, hey, if you leave the land when God has cursed it, He's going to strike you dead. Don't do this. But they do this. And there's irony, actually, in a lot of these names that are here, especially um, in the name of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Because his name, we may or may not have a footnote, his name means that God is king. It's a short phrase. So Eli is just a a shortened part of Elohim, which just means God. And Melech is the Hebrew word for king, so it's just God is king. Okay, well, he's not acting at all like God is king. The first thing he does when he bursts on the scene is he's acting like Elimelech is king because he's just going to abandon God's land and abandon God's people and go and do his own thing. And he lives much like Judah. His sons marry foreign women. His sons live in sin like Judah's sons. And another thing that happens is you notice no sons have been born to Ortha or to Ruth that are mentioned. That's another sign of the curse in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. That for Israel's people, at least when they are stricken with childlessness, it should most of the time be seen as their sin in the land. But again, they don't repent. And what ends up happening is just what God warned them is that all of the men are struck dead by God. And there's some more irony in the names of his sons. Um, the names of his son are kind of, or both of his sons is, you know, sickly or to be sick um, and frailty or mortality. Um, so I don't know why he, they named their sons that. Um, seems like a bad idea because that's what happens to them. Okay? They, they both pass away and they die. And so that's Naomi's family. But when it comes to Naomi herself, right? we don't know if she had a say in if the family was going to leave the land or not. Maybe she told Elimelech, this is a terrible idea. What are you doing, you dope? This is going to turn out horrible, and it does. And she said and said, well, I told you so. We don't really know. But what we see is her response to what happens reveals her own disloyalty. It reveals her own heart because first, when she sends her daughter-in-laws away, too, she's also telling them, hey, just go back to your gods. You can worship them. That's fine. You know, all gods are really the same. My God's not that great. Maybe your God's better. You know, you, you guys go do what you want. That's not a good response. But we also see what she does is that she's only willing to return to the land once she hears that there's food there. In one six, she says, well, you know, she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given him food. So she doesn't go back once her husband has died and her sons have died and said, you know what, we need to go back and repent. She only goes back after it seems like a good idea for everybody else. But we also see that she blames God. She blames God not for her own sin, but for the consequences and the death and the suffering that has come. Right in 21, right, she blames God explicitly and says, you know, why call me Naomi? I'm going to change my name tomorrow, which means bitter. Okay, so don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Because the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. So she is blaming God for the consequences of her own sin. Her family has not been loyal to the Lord. They have not followed after God's law. They have explicitly done the opposite of what God said. And what has happened is, well, exactly what God said would happen if you don't listen to Him. And what is Naomi's response? Her response is to change her name to bitter and to get angry and to blame God for what God already warned her and told her, hey, don't do that. It's going to be bad. Right? And we, this, is, this is something that we do all the time, don't we? we? We blame God or we blame other people when we have to face the own consequences of our actions or the consequences of our sins. See this a lot with you know, little two-year-old Calvin. There are lots of things that happen constantly. I'm trying to teach him this. Hey, Calvin, don't do that. If you do that, you are going to fall. 
hey, Calvin, because he likes to help, you know, he likes to help me cook. And so, hey, Calvin, do not touch this. It is hot. And he'll say, hot, hot. Yes. Okay, we, we got it. This is hot. Don't touch it. And then he touches it, right? And he said, well, it's like, well, Calvin, this is the consequences of your actions. If only there was some kind of person who could have warned you, who could have told you that this is what would happen. Don't blame me. I I did everything I could here, right? But we do the same thing. Okay, we we sin. We do what God tells us not to do because it's going to blow up our life and it won't work great. And then what happens? Our life blows up. Sin destroys us. And then we go and we get mad at God. God, why'd you let me do that? God, why do I have to face all these consequences of my sin? You are such a jerk. That's what Naomi is doing. And we laugh, but we know deep down that's what we do. That's what we all do, and that is what Naomi is doing. And they are, her family is embodying disloyalty to God. And they're only willing to come back once God decides to, to bless them. They're not willing to face up the consequences of their sin. And so that's Naomi's family. Let's take a look at Ruth. And what we see with Ruth is actually the opposite, where Ruth embodies loyalty. Ruth really embodies loyalty to God's covenant. Not just loyalty to Naomi and not just loyalty to Naomi's people, but really ultimately to God. And at the beginning we see, okay, when Naomi is trying to tell her daughter-in-laws to go away and, hey, just, just leave me, go back. This is actually a kind thing that Naomi is doing. Naomi is not being mean here. She's not being a jerk, okay? She's not just kicking him out of the house, because she's cruel. What's happening in 8 and 9, you know, she's saying, hey, go return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal again, has said kindly with you. Would maybe hope God shows loyalty to you because he's not to me as you have dealt in, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you rest and find each of you in the house of your husbands. And she's telling them, go away, go, go get married, go live your lives, go return to your, go to return to your own gods, go return to your own things. And both daughters, both of them, Orpah and Ruth, say, no, 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 we want to hang out with you, Naomi. We love you. We want to be where you go. And Naomi lays out 11 through 13 in chapter 1, why this is a terrible idea. And it is a terrible idea for them. Okay, because if they go back, if they go back with Naomi, what's going to happen? They cannot get married anymore. They can't marry whoever they want because they have to follow God's covenant. They will be under the covenant of God, and they're not going to be in the land of Moab where Naomi's family is, can do what they want, and no one knows and no one cares. They're going to be in the midst of Israel where everyone's going to know, everyone's going to see. And they can't have children. If they're going to have children, we can remember tomorrow that we talked about last week, they're going to have to wait for Naomi to have another kid, which she's saying, this, girls, this is not going to happen, okay? And so you're going to be stuck. It is terrible. You don't want this. And so Orpah, she says, yep, you're right, Naomi, that does sound terrible. Love you. Bye. Okay, and I, we really shouldn't blame her, okay? And the text doesn't seem to blame her. It's just setting her up as a foil to Ruth and to show, like, the incredible decision that Ruth makes. And Ruth shows her remarkable loyalty, not just Naomi, but to God. Naomi asks God in verse 8 to deal kindly to show his said to Ruth. And what we see is that instead of just God showing it to Ruth, Ruth is actually the only one who shows it back to God out of Naomi's family. And this incredible statement in 116, where she says, Where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are my people, your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die, and where you're buried, I want to be buried next to you. May the Lord do so to me, and more so also, if anything but death parts me from you. She is saying, God, strike me dead if I abandon you. May God strike me dead if I abandon God's covenant, your people. She is willing to give up everything not just to hang out with Naomi, but to really embrace God in this covenant. She is saying, hey, I'm all in. 
She's willing to be wherever Naomi is. She's willing to live wherever Naomi is. She's walking away from her people completely to go into a foreign land where they don't speak her language, where they don't look like her, where they don't have her customs, where her family isn't going to come and visit for the holidays. And she's coming into a foreigner knowing that she's going to be on the margins, knowing that she will be a widow who could never get remarried, willing to fully embrace the God of Naomi, willing to embrace Yahweh. She's saying, I am all in. She's not just saying, well, I'll fake it till we make it. She's saying, no, 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 I want to embrace your God. And we see Ruth's um, incredible character as well. As soon as they get to the land in chapter 2, she goes right to work. Okay, And she is tough. She's a hard worker. Okay, And this thing that's going on with the reapers and people gathering after them, this is it's part of the covenant law that God gave in the book of Moses to His people. And He said, okay, when you are harvesting your fields, when it's harvest time, don't get everything you can. Okay, when, when, you're, when your guys go through and they do their best to get it, if they miss something, leave it. Do not go back for it. If you drop something, don't pick it up. Leave it on the ground and invite the poor, invite the widows, and invite the foreigners and let them come and get that. And so that's what Nate, Ruth, she has two things she can go do this on. She's a foreigner and she's a widow. So she goes and she does this. But this also shows us too the kind of man that Boaz is and that he's allowing this to happen, right? Because not everybody is doing this. I'm sure we can all imagine some people who would be greedy, who wouldn't care about the poor, who wouldn't care about foreigners, who wouldn't care about widows and who would want to do it. But so Ruth goes ahead and she is working hard and she's working hard in the fields. And we see that everyone has heard the story of Ruth and her incredible loyalty. In six, when Boaz is like, hey, who is this? They say, hey, this is the young Moabite one. Okay, Bethlehem's a small town. Word gets around. Especially word gets around of an incredible story like Ruth. Man, Boaz, you haven't heard the story of what Ruth has done. You haven't heard her loyalty. What I love in 2-3, I love how God shows up to care for Ruth right away. This phrase, you see, well, and Ruth, she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. She just happened to, you know, show up there. What a coincidence. Man, who could have foreseen such a thing happening? What great luck. Okay, that comes across here too. It, in the Hebrew, it, it's kind of hard to translate. There's a number of different ways you could do it because it's like she encountered an encounter or chanced upon chance as luck could have it. You know, wouldn't you know it? Ruth randomly happened to end up at the one place on the first day wandering in the field of the guy who actually could redeem their whole family. And not only that, he's actually a wonderful, godly man. Wow, man. Only God could have made that happen. Oh, wait, he did. That's exactly what it's trying to show us here. And what we see in Ruth and her story is that she is willing to embrace God no matter the cost. She is willing to walk away from her family. She is willing to walk away from her, the old things, the old gods that she worshiped. She is willing to embrace God knowing she doesn't do it saying, Naomi saying, hey, you know, you do it, but like, don't worry, we're going to get to heaven one day. It's going to be awesome. All she knows is, hey, this is probably not going to be that great for you. She says, you know what? No. No matter what your God brings me, I am all in. That is incredible faith that Ruth shows, that no matter the cost, she's willing to embrace Yahweh. And so now I want to turn our attention to Boaz, um, and we're, we're going to kind of still talk about Ruth and Boaz, kind of back and forth a little bit, but what we see with Boaz is that Boaz embodies Christ as a kinsman redeemer. So that Boaz embodies Christ as a kinsman redeemer. And so there's lots of hints of Boaz's righteousness. Okay, we've already talked about how he's allowing people to come in his fields and to work there. 
Um, we also see that what Boaz does is he greets his people in 2.4 and saying, hey, the, the Lord Yahweh be with you. He's greeting them um, in that name. And you also see how he takes interest in Ruth and caring for her. Now, the tough part is we can have our hallmark, you know, glasses on and then see, oh, this is the first meeting, love at first sight, isn't, you know, we can tend to kind of have that. There's nothing in here in this chapter that gives us any reason to think that Boaz is doing this because he thinks that Ruth is really cute, okay, or that he's doing it because he's got the hots for her, he's like, oh, she's single, well, I'm single too, well, I gotta see how Ruth is doing, and that's not what's going on here at all. What he's doing and what it seems that he's coming out of and doing this is just out of his righteousness and grace and just his, the kindness that God has given to him, the kindness that has said he's seen Ruth do. He wants to give her kindness as well. So in 2.8, he says, don't go any other field. He says, stay here. In this field, you will be taken care of. Can't promise you if you go in other fields, what other men may or may not do, but in this one, I'm going to make sure that you're safe. Tells her, stay close to the young women and nine. I've made sure no one is going to touch you. No one is going to bother you. No one is going to assault you. No one is going to do anything at all to harm you. But it gets crazier in 2.9 where he says, hey, when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink with the young, where the young men have drawn. Okay, this isn't Boaz telling Ruth the best place to get a drink. He's not saying, hey, water fountain's over there. You know, you get thirsty, go ahead and do that. He's actually totally flipping cultural expectations on their head because what should happen is foreigners are supposed to draw water for the Israelites, okay? And women are supposed to draw water for the men. So Ruth should be last in line because she's a foreigner and a woman. So she should be drawing everybody else water when it's time for the water break. But instead what Boaz is saying, hey, when the Israelite men have drawn their water because wells are hard, right? You got to do a lot of work to get that water up. It's not just a button, okay? Modern plumbing is really wonderful. I'm thankful for that. What he is saying is, I want them to serve you. The Israelite men are going to serve the foreign woman because of your grace, because of your loyalty to the Lord. And Ruth responds in 10, realizing this, you know, what in the world? Why have I found favor of your eyes that you should take notice of me? And Boaz responds to 12, I want the Lord to repay you for what you've done. You just, you, a full reward be given to you from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is going to come again later, but again, he's saying, look, you have come to God for safety, and I want to make sure that he brings it. Because when you run to the Lord as a refuge, he brings you that refuge. He is a safe place. When you put all of your faith and your trust in him, he will show up. And here, how he shows up for Ruth is he shows up in the person of Boaz, who is kind of living out like a person like Jesus. And then generosity continues in 14 where he gives Ruth a meal, right? And he says, hey, come and eat some of the bread and dip your morsel in this wine in 2.14. And sharing a meal in the, in the ancient world, it's a big deal. Okay, it's, it's a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of something deep is actually kind of happening here. He is inviting Ruth into the community of Israel. He's saying, hey, don't sit over at the foreign table by yourself. Come eat with us. Come eat with me. And here, come have some of the good food. Don't eat some of this stuff that you've just picked off of the ground. Eat some of my bread. And he gives her some dip to dip the morsel in this wine, or as Calvin would call it, dip dip, because that boy really loves, he's discovered he can dip things. He's a really big fan. He'll dip anything and everything into whatever he can find. Um, and, and that's what Boaz is giving Ruth here, is he's giving her the premium meal. This is a feast that she gets to partake in. And she gets roasted 
ground. Okay, this is cooked. This is, you know, his personal chef, maybe. I don't know. But she eats until she's satisfied, and then she has leftovers. And Boaz goes even further. He's not done. In 15, he instructs his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and don't reproach her, don't rebuke her. And also pull out some of the bundles and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. And what is he saying? He's saying, hey, so I don't just want Ruth to follow along behind you and get the scraps. Let her come up alongside you and get the good stuff. And not only that, I want you, when you're done, take some stuff out of your own basket and throw it down beside her for her to get. This is incredible generosity. And at the end of the day, what we see is that, you know, in 217, she gets this epath of barley and you go, okay, well, you know, mine has a nice little footnote that says three to five bushels or 22 liters. And I go, okay, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Somebody translate that for me, maybe. Well, it's about a 30, 50 pound bag of barley is what she's got at the end of one day. That's pretty good. This also should tell us that Ruth is pretty strong. Okay, she's much tougher than me. Okay, I don't want to carry that around, but she can. So she's a strong woman. She does this, and when she shows up, her mother-in-law, Naomi, is blown away. First off, she recognizes when she comes home in 219, well, what man took notice of you? Because right? women are, are in trouble here. They have to have somebody who takes care of them. They have to in, in this society, or they're going to be taken advantage of by everyone else. So knowing, okay, you're coming home with 30, 50 pounds, you, you know, no one would have let that happen. Somebody would have beat you up. They would have stolen it. You know, something would have happened. What in the world happened? And what, what do you know? The man who actually did this is the only one who could actually help them out of their situation. It's their redeemer. And there's a slight difference here between Boaz and Judah that we talked about last week with Tamar. Not just in their levels of righteousness, although there's a massive gulf between the two of them. Right, but last week we talked about the, the Leveret Law, right? So if somebody dies, you know, their brother-in-law or maybe even their father-in-law needs to um, you know, marry them and give them children so that the name of the dead doesn't pass away. Okay, we're also much further now. We have the whole book of Moses, and that's put into the law. That, that is law. That's what's supposed to happen. Not father-in-laws, but just brother-in-laws now at this point. God's clarified what he thinks. But there's a difference between that and this phrase that pops up over and over, a kinsman redeemer. And that's a Hebrew word, um, goel, if that interests you. And so what's happening is the levir, the person that Judah was supposed to do with Tamar, that person is obligated. Okay, your brother-in-law, you must do this. You must marry your sister-in-law and you must give her children to perpetuate this name. But the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, does not have to do this. It is not obligated. It's further, it's, it's further out. It's, well, you know, it's okay if this line dies out. And the kinsman redeemer can do so much more. The kinsman redeemer actually has further power. They can buy back family who's been sold into slavery. They can restore land. They can redeem people, and they can marry them and give them children. They can do all of those things. And we see that's what's happening much later in 4 when he says, hey, Naomi is selling her land. Kate, Naomi doesn't actually have control over that land. What it is is that land that's supposed to be Naomi's that somebody else is in charge of now, that's going to be mine. That's what Boaz is doing. That's what the Redeemer can do. He can reclaim the family land that Naomi and her family have lost. Because Naomi can't do that on her own. Who's going to listen to poor, bitter, old widow Naomi? And so that's who Boaz is. And so now we get to this part where it's this kind of questionable um, marriage proposal. And so some see this passage in three in the threshing floor as being sexually promiscuous or a little weird, um, seems kind of shady. And there's some reasons because, you know, it's 
out alone, and typically when maybe a prostitute would come and do this. But, you know, I'm not going to explain everything that's going on here, but part of this, I think Naomi is just giving Ruth good advice. Okay, in 3.3, when she's saying, hey, wash yourself, put on some perfume, put on your cloak, and go down there and talk to him. She's saying, girl, you've been out in the field, okay, for weeks. You're carrying around 30, 50-pound bags. It's the Middle East. It's hot. Okay, you're a mess. Why don't you go get cleaned up? Why don't you take a shower, put on some perfume, put on some new clothes that aren't covered, and, you know, all this junk in the field, and then go propose. Because who is going to go and propose to somebody or get proposed to looking like you just worked all day in the field in the Middle East, okay? No one would probably want to do that. So I think this is just good advice that Naomi's doing. But what she tells Naomi to do, or what she tells Ruth to do is, okay, uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. I think that's just, hey, uncover it so the wind's going to get cold. He's going to wake up. He's going to see you. But what Naomi tells Ruth to do is be quiet. Don't say anything. Let him, let him see what you're asking. He, he should get it. He should understand what's going on here. What I love is that Ruth does not take that part of Naomi's advice. As soon as Boaz wakes up and she says, hey, who, who, what's going on? I'm groggy. Who is this? And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings. Thing Boaz said to her before, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth proposes to Boaz. Even today, this would already be radical, right? Because no, women aren't supposed to propose. Men are supposed to propose. So this is really, really radical all the way back then. And I think this is part of why Ruth does this at night when no one else is around to save Boaz and herself some embarrassment in case this goes sideways. Have you ever seen engagements that, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, it's sometimes morbidly, I find them interesting, and then I just feel bad, right? If you're watching something, it's all in public, and it's this beautiful phrase, and then you just see somebody, the face on the one, and you're just like, oh, no, this is terrible. I'm just going to say no. This is awful. It's awful for everybody. We all feel uncomfortable, and we hate it, right? She's trying to avoid that, and she's trying to avoid Boaz's honor because he doesn't have to do this, so if he says no, she doesn't want him to have to feel bad about it. So that's what I think is going on here, and Boaz understands exactly what Ruth is doing. The text is clearly established he's an incredibly righteous man that's given us no reason to doubt anything in his character, and he knows what's going on. He doesn't think Ruth is doing anything shady. And in time, 4.10, he says, may you be blessed. May this kindness, or 3.10, may this kindness last even, or this last kindness last is even greater than the first. So this last has said the kindness that she showed to Boaz is even greater than the kindness that she's shown to Naomi. He's saying, you know, you didn't go after younger men. You didn't go after somebody that's got more money. Like, you, you've just come here. But there's a wrinkle because there's another redeemer who's closer in line that they have to deal with. And what's interesting is there's lots of names in this passage, but his name is not mentioned. Right? And in fact, when Boaz sees him, and so Boaz tells, hey, hey I'm going to take care of this. And he goes and he sits down at the city gates, which is the place you do business. So when he's sitting there, everyone knows what he does. Oh, okay, Boaz has come to do business. Well, what kind of business? Well, let's find out. So all the elders get, gather around, and the Redeemer comes. And Boaz says, turn aside, friend. Um, it, it's, the word is really just kind of a general word. Really just kind of, hey, Mr. So-and-so, or blah, blah, or blank. It's kind of what the text is doing. We'll come back to why he's doing that in a reason, or in a second. But so he's doing that, says, hey, man, there, you know, there's this land, Naomi's selling it, and it's available. Do you want it? Yeah, sweet. You want some land? Sounds great. Oh, just, you know, little catch. Ruth, the foreign woman, he mentions that she's foreign over and over. Yeah, you're going to have to marry her, um, and then any of your kids probably aren't going to be your kids. They're going to be, you know, her dead husband's kids. He says, yeah, you know, sounds like a terrible deal. No, thank you. 
But you also see what he says is he's worried about his own name. Because he says in 6, 4, 6, I can't redeem it for myself. I don't want to impair my own inheritance. Take this for yourself. I don't want this. So there's irony going in the text. He's worried about his own name, his own inheritance going on, and the text doesn't even give him a name. It's ironic. He misses out. He's really concerned about that. Well, hope you're happy, buddy. Uh, Mr. Blah Blah or so-and-so. And so his name gets erased from history anyway. And him and Boaz, they switched their sandals, which we mentioned back or last week in Leviticus 25, if, if somebody didn't want to fulfill the Mary, you know, bring their brother a, a son, they would take their sandal off and spit on their face and then mock them. Well, so they're switching sandals to show like, hey, this is all kosher. This is all good. This guy's, you know, he's doing his duty. I'm doing my duty, so we're all fine. But what's happening here is that Boaz is redeeming Ruth in the way that this man would not. And everybody celebrates it. And they mention Tamar, which we've mentioned a number of times in 12, and say, you know, would this be like how Tamar bore Perez to Judah? May the Lord do such a thing to you. Or would you be blessed in the same way that they were blessed? What we see in the way that Boaz um, exemplifies Christ is as a redeemer. But also the fact that Boaz is willing to redeem a woman that other people want nothing to do with. Boaz is willing to redeem this one. And, you know, we can't fully blame this guy because, you know what, Ruth is married for at least 10 years and she's got no kids, probably older. That time you're thinking, well, how many child-rearing days does she have left? What if she can only have one and then it's not going to be mine? In fact, she seems to only have one and it's not Boaz's. It's someone, you know, it's her son. So we see how that goes on. And you know what Boaz says? He says, no, I want Ruth. And he uses the phrase, I have bought to be my wife in 10. It's not trying to be patriarchal or saying that she's his property. It's trying to say, I have redeemed her. Boaz has redeemed Ruth in the same way that Jesus redeems us. He buys us. He has purchased us with his blood. You may or may not be a widow. You may or may not be in a foreign land, but all of us are in desperate need for redemption. All of us are in desperate need for a Redeemer, for Jesus to come and to purchase us. And you know, He comes and He doesn't just say, it's not a market where He goes and say, who's the best one? Or I'm going to get the most return on my investment. Who's going to turn out to be the best Christian? Who's going to be, you know, the, the person who's going to have the most influence in the world or do the best things for me? That's who I want to redeem. No, no, no. Jesus goes and redeems all of us. And most of the time we see how Jesus redeems the people on the margins. He redeems the leper. He redeems the sinners. He redeems the seminary rejects, not the Pharisees. He goes after the broken and the widows and the sick and the people on the margins, the people that everyone else overlooks. That's who Jesus redeems. And that's good news for us. Because it means that Jesus redeems us. And Jesus is the only one who can do this. He's the only one who can do this. Just Boaz was the only person who could have saved Ruth truly, and she was begging him to spread his wings over him. Jesus spreads his wings over us. And Jesus came not as a king and as a conqueror, but he came as a redeemer and as a savior. And we see that this ends again with a genealogy, but this one's really exciting because it's short, but also it ends with David. It ends with the greatest king in Israel's history. The greatest king. And we know that this is where Jesus' line comes from comes from David. 
And it shows us, one, that Jesus is going to be a king, but he is a much different kind of king. He is a king like Boaz. Now Boaz redeems us. And we also see Boaz redeems Ruth in response to her loyalty. And because of her loyalty, because of her faithfulness to God and his covenant, Boaz responds by redeeming her. And it's somewhat of a picture of what Jesus does with us, where he responds to our faith. It's not that we do something and we gain salvation because, you know, we worked hard enough or we did enough things or we followed all the rules correctly. But when all we have to do is just respond to Jesus in faith. We have to do just what Ruth did and just uncover his feet and beg and say, Jesus, would you spread your wings and save me? And he does. And that's what our Redeemer does. And our, our, our God shows his head in loyalty and love and kindness to those who just come to him and who ask them or ask him to be their Redeemer. That's all we have to do is ask. And he does. Let us pray. And I'll invite the worship team to come up and lead us in one more song. Lord, I thank you that you are our Redeemer. I thank you that you don't go after the best and the brightest and leave the rest of us alone. Lord, I'm thankful that you came down from heaven to save the losers and the overlooked, to save the people who feel unlovable, to save the widows and the foreigner. Lord, you came to save everyone. Lord, thank you for saving us. Lord, would you help us? Help us if we haven't embraced your love or asked you to be a redeemer, would we do that? And Lord, if we have done that, would you help us continue to be faithful to you? Lord, would you help us to, to, be, rem, to be reminded of the redemption that you've brought us? That you would help us to live in light of that redemption. Help us not to be like Naomi's family and to be disloyal to you, but to be loyal to you, not because we're hoping to gain things, but just because we love you. And we do love you, Jesus. Lord, we pray these holy and precious things in your name. Amen. Do you stand if you're able as we continue to worship in song? <coughs>